Good morning. My name is Michael Hall. I'm a uh, professor of biochemistry at the uh, Biocentrum of the University of Basel. And I work on, on cell growth. Uh, and iBiology has asked me to tell you the story of the discovery of, of TOR. Now, TOR is a, is a kinase. It's a highly conserved kinase. And uh, more importantly, it's a central controller of cell growth. And this is the, the story I'll tell you uh, today. So this is the timeline of the TOR field. The story actually starts in 1965. And that's when a group of scientists from Montreal set out for Easter Island, known as uh, Rapa Nui to the locals. And they're prospecting for, for exotic microbes, which uh, produced natural products or secondary metabolites, which they could then develop into a, uh, an antifungal. They did isolate a, a, a bacterium from the soil. It was a streptomycete, uh, from which they isolated a compound which they called rapamycin uh, after Rapa Nui. However, when they started to develop this compound as an antifungal, they realized it had the undesirable side effect of suppressing the immune system. So uh, it was then dropped and was never further developed as an antifungal. Years later, when uh, immunosuppressive therapy uh, uh, came into existence, uh, this uh, drug was then rediscovered, but now for use as an immunosuppressive. So it was now uh, developed for the very reason for which it had originally uh, been uh, rejected. So we uh, started uh, our studies on, uh, on rapamycin, trying to elucidate the molecular mechanism of, uh, of rapamycin action. Uh, and this story was started by, uh, by uh, an outstanding postdoc uh, uh, who joined the lab in 1989, uh, Joe Heitman. He uh, was an MD, PhD, who had just finished his PhD studies uh, at, uh, in New York at Rockefeller University. And given his medical background, he was interested in understanding how, how drugs uh, functioned. And we also, another fortuitous uh, circumstance, was an, an ongoing collaboration with uh, Rao Mova, who uh, was a group leader at a local Basel company by the name of Sandoz, which is now known as Novartis. Now, Joe and Rao had the, the brilliant idea to study the mechanism of action of rapamycin by taking an approach, a genetic approach, with the uh, simple eukaryote yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae in particular. Now, uh, this was a brilliant idea because not only did it allow one to use genetics to go after the, the target of rapamycin, but it was also an unusual idea because at that time rapamycin was uh, being developed for a, as a drug for use on humans, and uh, everybody else was, of course, working on mammalian cells to understand how this uh, drug worked. But uh, Joe and Rao remembered that uh, rapamycin had originally been isolated as an antifungal, and you could therefore use. Uh, use yeast and yeast genetics in particular to, uh, to study rapamycin action. So uh, what uh, Joe did was he grew up a culture of our, of our standard uh, lab yeast strain uh, and then plated it on, uh, on solid media containing rapamycin. Uh, and uh, the rapamycin killed most of the cells which, uh, which were plated on this, uh, on this petri dish. But a few spontaneous uh, mutants arose. Uh, he then picked these mutants, uh, these and several others. He characterized about a total of 20 different rapamycin-resistant mutants, at least in the early phase of the study. And he uh, then purified each one of these individual uh, mutants uh, and then characterized them. Uh, more particularly, he, uh, 
he determined the number of complementation groups and what uh, genes were mutated in these uh, in these uh, in these uh, strains to uh, to confer rapamycin resistance. So Joe found that uh, these uh, rapamycin-resistant yeast mutants were defective in any one of three different genes. Uh, the vast majority of the mutations were recessive and in a gene called FPR1. This is actually a gene which Joe had already characterized in the lab in the context of his earlier studies on, an, on a rapamycin-like drug called FK506. But he also obtained uh, mutants in two novel genes. Uh, these uh, mutations were extremely rare uh, and unlike the FPR1 mutations, were dominant. So uh, uh, this was the first uh, uh, the first appearance in the literature in 1991 of of Tor. So this was uh, the uh, the original identification of Tor in this case as genetic loci uh, in the yeast uh, uh, genome. But we still didn't know uh, what the Tor genes encoded, uh, nor did we know why these mutations were dominant. Uh, and, and rare. Now to answer these questions, uh, two new uh, students uh, joined the project. Uh, one was uh, uh, Jeanette Kuntz, an uh, extremely bright and uh, hard-working uh, Swiss student, and then uh, Stephen Helliwell, a British uh, student who was uh, one of the more colorful members of our, of our lab, as you can probably guess from this photograph. So what uh, uh, Jeanette and Stephen did was they cloned the, the Tor genes uh, from our rapamycin-resistant yeast uh, uh, mutants and uh, sequenced these, uh, these, uh, uh, these genes, uh, both the wild-type version and the rapamycin-resistance-conferring version. And this allowed us to uh, understand why the Tor mutants were, were dominant and rare and the uh, FPR1 mutants were, were uh, recessive and, and common. And the, uh, and the reason relates to the mechanism of action of rapamycin, and that's shown on this slide. Uh, ra uh, uh, this is rapamycin, uh, drawn in red here. Uh, this is a very lipophilic molecule, so it simply diffuses across the plasma membrane. It does not require any kind of transporter, which when mutated could confer rapamycin resistance. And once inside the cell, it then forms a complex with this other uh, very small 12 kilodalton protein called FKDP, which is absolutely essential for drug action. The, the toxic uh, agent is the rapamycin uh, FKBP complex. Drug alone does nothing. And the FPR1, or the FKBP uh, protein, is not only uh, completely essential for drug action, but it's not required for cell viability. So any simple loss of function mutation in the gene encoding this FKBP protein confers complete uh, rapamycin uh, resistance, and such mutations would be uh, recessive. That's why most mutations were in the FKBP encoding gene and why these mutations were recessive. TOR, on the other hand, and this is just a very small portion of TOR. TOR is about a 300 kilodalton protein uh, as compared to this 12 kilodalton uh, protein here, so you can see this is indeed a very small part of the of the uh, Tor uh, protein. This is the FKBP uh, rapamycin binding uh, site in in Tor, and unlike FKBP, uh, Tor is uh, completely uh, uh, essential for uh, cell viability, and therefore it can uh, tolerate very little of mutation. 
In fact, every mutation we obtained, which uh, fell into the TOR uh, gene, uh, modified a, a one residue. They all fell in the same uh, codon, which uh, modified uh, a residue in this alpha helix, which uh, was a key contact site between TOR uh, and rapamycin. So the effect of these mutations was to prevent the binding of rapamycin to, to TOR without otherwise affecting TOR activity. And given that these mutations were confined to this single codon, uh, this is why the, uh, these mutations were extremely rare. And of course, they conferred rapamycin resistance in the presence of a, of a wild-type copy of the TOR gene, which is uh, why they were dominant. So these mutations were extremely informative. They not only helped elucidate the mechanism of action of, of uh, rapamycin, that formed, the fact that it forms a complex with FKBP, it also led to the, uh, the defecation of the binding sites in, uh, in the uh, TOR protein, and most importantly, led to the identification of, of TOR itself. So once we cloned the, uh, the, the TOR genes and sequenced them, we found, uh, first of all, that the, the two uh, TOR genes encode very similar proteins. These proteins are 70% identical. Uh, and they also turned out to be the founding members of this class of, uh, of kinases, uh, protein kinases, called PI kinase-related protein kinases. And the reason for that is they, uh, they, they, all the members of this uh, class of atypical protein kinases resemble lipid kinases, PI kinases in particular. Since its early uh, discovery of, of TOR in yeast, uh, TOR has been found now in all eukaryotes uh, from yeast all the way to human. Uh, and the name TOR from yeast has been kept for all these uh, organisms. Uh, in the case of, of human TOR or mammalian TOR, we call it mTOR for mammalian uh, TOR. So this is where we were uh, in 1993 after the cloning and sequencing of our, of our TOR mutants. Uh, we knew... Uh, the TOR existed, uh, and it was the copy of uh, the, the uh, target of a uh, FKBP rapamycin uh, complex. And in this model, you can actually see this is the time where we still thought TOR was a lipid kinase, a PI kinase in particular, uh, as uh, indicated by the, the PI, the phosphatidyl inositol uh, in this uh, figure. We had no idea at the time what was upstream and what was actually downstream of TOR. We also incorrectly thought the role of TOR was to control G1 progression, in other words, to control cell division. But this uh, turned out to be wrong. Uh, and in fact, uh, uh, the role of TOR is to control cell growth. And here I have to make an important distinction between cell growth, which is an increase in cell size or cell mass, versus cell division, which is an increase in cell number. Uh, we never expected that the TOR would be a controller of cell growth because as hard as it might be to believe from the perspective of today, in those days nobody thought cell growth was actively controlled. In other words, there would be no system to control uh, cell growth. It was thought to be a spontaneous process that just happens when nutrients are, or building blocks are available. So we uh, had to uh, do additional uh, research to eventually arrive at the conclusion that the, the role of TOR2 is to control cell growth. And we came at this, uh, at this conclusion uh, based on a great deal of work not only from our lab but a, a large number of other largely yeast labs in, this, uh, in those times, uh, which showed that TOR controls a large number of cellular processes 
Now these uh, cellular processes can be subdivided into two groups. Uh, the anabolic processes, which TOR activates, and the catabolic processes, which TOR inhibits. So TOR balances these opposing forces of, of synthesis and degradation uh, in response to, and this is important, in response to nutrients. And this is also something we uh, discovered uh, uh, in the mid-1990s uh, that the uh, TOR is activated by, by nutrients. So, uh, and then this led to the uh, model that TOR is a, a central controller of cell growth. This is most uh, uh, photogenically illustrated in experiments done uh, in, in Drosophila uh, by uh, Tom Neufeld uh, and then Bruce Edgar. Uh, on the far side here, we have an experiment done by Tom Neufeld. Uh, this is the fat body of a fruit fly. And what Tom did was he selectively inactivated TOR in these two GFP-expressing cells. And as you can see, these cells are smaller than their neighboring wild-type cells. Bruce Edgar did the inverse experiment. Uh, what he did was he hyperactivated TOR signaling uh, in these uh, GFP-expressing cells, and he observed the opposite effect. The cells became much larger. So the obvious conclusion from these uh, experiments which were largely confirmation of work done earlier in yeast, was that uh, the role of TOR is to, is to control cell growth and thereby cell size. Now, Tom Neufeld took this experiment one step further by now isolating a mutant fly, TOR mutant fly, in which all cells of the entire animal are defective for TOR signaling. And it's important to point out that this uh, TOR mutant fly is a so-called hypomorph, so it's a partial loss of function if it had been a a complete loss of function, uh, this fly never would have been born, given the TOR is, is absolutely essential for viability. So when Tom Neufeld isolated this fly, he then asked the question, why is this fly smaller? Is it smaller because it has fewer cells, or is it smaller because it has the normal number of cells, but now each individual cell is slightly smaller? Uh, and he could answer this question by, by looking in the wing, where he could, uh, the wing is a plane of cells, so he could relatively easily uh, measure the size of individual cells, and count the number of cells. And from that, he could extrapolate to, to the whole animal. And what he found was this uh, tormute fly had more or less the normal number of cells, but each individual cell was uh, slightly smaller. So the conclusion from this is, is that the role of TOR is not only to control cell size, but thereby also to control size of individual tissues, and ultimately the size of the whole animal. So TOR controls growth very broadly, broadly in terms of organism and broadly in terms of physiological context. Essentially, any, any situation in eukaryotic biology where you see a change in cell size, there's a high likelihood that TOR will be somehow involved. So here we had another conundrum. Uh, we had known earlier from our, from our genetic studies in yeast that uh, there are two TOR uh, genes, two TOR proteins in yeast. And whereas these two proteins were similar, 70% identical, they were not functionally identical. And this came from the observation that if we uh, knocked out the TOR1 gene, nothing happened. So we proposed that, that the TOR2 then has some redundant function with, with TOR1. If we knocked out TOR2 alone, the cells died. Uh, but they didn't die in the G1 phase of the cell cycle. And finally, uh, if we knocked out both TOR genes uh, simultaneously, 
the cells, of course, still died, but now they died in G1 phase of the cell cycle. Uh, this told us that uh, TOR2 has two functions. TOR1 has one function, and that one function of TOR1 overlaps with one of the two functions of TOR2. So we didn't know what these two so-called functions uh, were and how they uh, controlled cell growth. Well, again, uh, a great deal of work from our and, uh, and a number of other labs uh, uh, doing yeast genetics uh, found that uh, these two separate functions of TOR are, in fact, two separate signaling pathways. Uh, one is the what we call the uh, TOR2 unique pathway, uh, and uh, this signals uh, to the actin cytoskeleton, and, uh, and we therefore view this as a pathway which uh, mediates uh, spatial control of cell growth. The other function of TOR, uh, the one that uh, uh, either TOR1 or TOR2 uh, can perform, uh, uh, this controls all these uh, processes which lead to mass accumulation uh, in response to nutrients. And we view this, uh, this uh, signaling pathway, this signaling branch of TOR, as mediating uh, temporal control of cell growth. So we think the logic of these two different uh, TOR signaling uh, pathways is that they integrate spatial and temporal control of cell growth. And of course, these two aspects of cell growth need to be uh, integrated. So at this stage, we had another problem, and that is what determines the specificity of, uh, of, the, of the TORs? Why can uh, TOR2 signal through both pathways, but TOR1 only through one? And we also did know why the TOR shared branch was rapamycin sensitive, whereas the TOR2 unique branch was rapamycin resistant. And to uh, uh, tackle these problems, uh, another postdoc joined the lab, Canadian postdoc Robbie Loweth, who teamed up with my long-term uh, technician, Wolfgang Opliger. And they decided, unlike our previous work, decided to take a biochemical approach to understanding uh, TOR signaling. So Robbie. Uh, uh, did this, he uh, purified the two uh, TOR uh, proteins, and what he found was that uh, uh, the TORs did, in fact, purify, co-purify with other proteins, and when he had these purified, what we now call uh, TOR complexes, TOR complex one and TOR complex two, when he had these two purified TORCs in the test tube, uh, we sequenced uh, the proteins. Uh, this allowed us to isolate the genes encoding all these uh, subunits of the two TOR complexes. And once we uh, uh, had the, uh, the genes isolated, he was able to knock these genes out. Uh, and when he did this, he found that these two TOR complexes corresponded to these two previously identified uh, TOR signaling pathways. So uh, at this stage, we started wondering whether the TOR complexes, like TOR itself, might be conserved all the way uh, to human. But to address this question, uh, another postdoc joined the lab, Estelle Yacinto. She joined the lab from uh, Michael Karin's lab and uh, was the first person in my lab to start studying TOR in mammalian cells to ask this specific question, uh, is, uh, uh, is TOR or are the TOR complexes conserved in, in mammals? So uh, she and uh, and notably other members of the TOR field uh, at this time, uh, most importantly, uh, David Sabatini, Kazu Yonezawa, and Kun Yang Guan, 
show that the two complexes indeed are conserved uh, in, in humans. Uh, they uh, are made up of the same proteins or orthologs of the proteins originally discovered in yeast. They phosphorylate or act on many of the same uh, downstream proteins to control the same cellular processes involved in cell uh, growth. So the picture that emerges is that the uh, TOR signaling network, and we call it a network because it's more than a single pathway, uh, the TOR signaling network is a primordial or ancestral signaling network which has been conserved all the way from yeast to human to uh, control this very fundamental process of cell growth. Now the sole exception to that statement I just made is this part of the network up here, which is the growth factor or insulin signaling uh, pathway. This evolved much later. This evolved with multicellularity and it was then uh, grafted onto the more primordial TOR signaling pathway, which already existed in unicellular yeast. And the reason for this is that cell growth control in, in metazones is more complex than unicellular organisms because in metazones it's critical to control the growth of every cell in the body with every other cell in the body. So you need an input which controls growth over a whole body plan. And this is then what the growth factor signaling input provides, uh, this control of cell growth over a whole body plan. Now I'd like to end uh, with a note on the clinical relevance of, of, of TOR. We now know, uh, based on work over the last 15 years, that uh, TOR signaling is, is functionally linked to uh, a large number of diseases, all of which are characterized by inappropriate or ectopic cell growth. These can be malignant forms of cell growth, such as cancer, or more benign forms of cell growth, like uh, uh, cardiac uh, hypertrophy. But in all, in all cases, cell growth, which also underscores the, the, uh, the function of TOR as a controller of cell growth. More recently, TOR has been implicated in another set of disorders, the so-called uh, metabolic disorders. And we know that uh, high, chronically high circulating levels of nutrients can upregulate TOR even in the absence of growth factors. Uh, this will lead to dipogenesis uh, and obesity, which of course can lead to uh, type 2 diabetes. Uh, but we have a more direct link to type 2 diabetes in the TOR uh, signaling network, and that is that TOR complex 1 can negatively feed back on the insulin signaling pathway by phosphorylating IRS. As a result of this, uh, high levels of TOR can lead to insulin uh, insensitivity, which is one of the hallmarks of type 2 diabetes. Uh, in this context, some have actually proposed using rapamycin uh, as an anti-diabetic drug, so this would be a fourth major therapeutic area uh, for this remarkable drug. Uh, however, I don't think anybody's actually seriously developing rapamycin as an anti-diabetic because there are a number of other complications. But at least uh, one finding or one, uh, one thing that gives credence to this notion that uh, to rapamycin could be developed into anti-diabetic is that the world's most commonly prescribed anti-diabetic, metformin, works at least in part by downregulating the TOR signaling pathway. So I've come to the end of the uh, story of, uh, of the discovery of TOR, or these three sub-discoveries of, of TOR signaling. The story I told you spanned the years of 1990 to uh, 2004.
a lot has happened since 2004, such that the field has grown even further. There's still a great deal of exciting biology, but that will have to be a story for another day. <laughs>